Our Father, we do want to thank you for the way that uh, you are the God we can't see, but you are the God that we can hear, because you speak to us from the Bible. We pray that you will help us from listening to this part of the Bible, to hear you speak to us. And we pray you will do that through Zim and through Natalie as she teaches the children. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, and if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Look, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore, uh, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. We'll stop there, and uh, the children will leave to their group, and then we'll stay, and Zim will come and explain that passage to us. Father, your word says, this is the one to whom I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in heart and trembles at my word. Father, we pray that you would make us people today who do 
uh, tremble uh, at your word, humbly receiving what you have to say to us and putting it into practice in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. So in, um, in the early 20th century, a guy called Ernest Shackleton, and if you've ever heard of him, probably not, he was an Antarctic, Antarctic explorer. He apparently famously printed a recruitment advert in the London papers, and it went like this. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in case of success. Now, I'm not sure what you think about his recruitment tactics, but it doesn't seem that winsome, does it? I mean, yeah, it's not the best, not, not, probably not the best advert, but actually, as I reflected on it, I thought, actually, this could easily be just, with the same words, a recruitment advert for Christian ministry in 21st century London. And why do I say that? Well, because actually, speaking the authentic message about Jesus in a place like London today is increasingly a hazardous task, isn't it? And you, let's look at those. So, hazardous journey, yes. Yeah, so, you might face um, rejection along the way. Um, people aren't going to like you saying that Jesus is the guy you need to believe in to be saved and no one else. Uh, small wages, Mike talked about that earlier in the interview. You're not going to get much money for being a Christian uh, minister. Uh, gone are the days of having a big vicarage or whatever that might be. Um, and then dark, yeah, months of complete darkness. So you guys will know some of that. You're going out door knocking, and it's dark, and it's cold, and people don't want to open their doors because it's cold outside. Um, and then there's, yeah, danger, like I said, danger of being thought, you're thought of as a bigot, as someone who's intolerant, just because you say, actually, you need to believe what the Bible says. And there, there might be some honour and recognition. You know, Mike might come to you at the end of the service and say, well done, mate, good to hear your story about speaking to your friend about Jesus. And you think, yes, get in, Mike gave me some honour. Um, and that feeling probably wouldn't last that long, but you know, it's, there you go. There might be some honour along the way. But the reason I bring this up is because to be a Christian in London and to speak and live for Jesus is increasingly a hazardous task, uh, particularly to remain committed to what the Bible authentically says about who Jesus is. Uh, and so for us, we've been doing some beliefs questionnaires on doors when we've been going out door knocking in Catford. And we asked you some, some questions, seven questions about faith, to see what the answers are. And it was striking, just a couple of days ago, I was knocking on a woman's door, and her and her mum came to the door, and they gave classic sort of atheist answers to these questions. And then out of the blue, they were like, but we're religious, we still celebrate Christmas and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought, that's interesting, is that people want the Christmas celebration, they want the Christmas drinks, but they don't want the Christmas message. Mm-hmm. Because, well, that's, well, that's weak, and that's foolish. Uh, who wants to believe in God coming in the flesh to save sinners? And you see, this cultural resistance to authentic Christianity, to the message about Jesus, it's not just out there in the world, it's also in the church. Um, it's also in the church, and it can be in our hearts. So I visited a church uh, in Catford uh, where there were no Bibles in sight. So what you guys have in your hand, none of it was around. And the, the pastor here stood up to give a sermon, and his sermon was about the building and how lovely the building is. And this church, you might think, well, that's a dead church. It was actually packed. <laughs> there are more people there than here. There were 80 people there. And at 9.30 in the morning at this church, I thought, as I went away, I thought it probably had something to do with the wine that they serve after the service. They, they have red wine at the end of the service every Sunday. Um, you see, and it's tempting for us to think, isn't it, that actually, why are we here splitting hairs of being true to the Bible, 
when no one cares. You see, why not just get rid of the Bibles and get rid of all this talk about sin and break out the, the red wine? That's how to grow a church in 21st century London. You see, and the question as we come to this passage that Mike just read is, what's going to keep us committed to the authentic message about Jesus? What's going to keep, a, keep us committed to the authentic message about Jesus? And this is what Paul wants us to know. See, as we come to this passage, Paul is defending his pattern of gospel ministry, of Christian ministry, because he was facing all sorts of pushback for his kind of gospel ministry. See, some people in the church that he was writing to, they wanted a different kind of gospel. They wanted one that isn't weak. It doesn't have a cross at the centre of it. And you see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Some other people in this, in this church, they wanted a different kind of preacher. They wanted one who is outwardly impressive, the mega church preacher. And you see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And some still in this church, they, well, they wanted a different kind of Christian devotion. They wanted a Christian devotion that meant that they could have one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. They didn't have to have their cultural idols challenged. And you see that in chapter 6. See, but as Paul writes, he wants to make one thing very clear. He wants to make it very clear that he cares for only Jesus' opinion. So look down at verse 11 of what we just read. Chapter 5, verse 11. Paul says, Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul says, it's the Lord that we fear, Jesus. I only care about his opinion. And so he keeps persuading people the same old gospel message about Jesus. And you see, Paul, well, he doesn't care what people say about him. Look at verse 11 again. What we are is known to God. It's not about what you think. It's about what God thinks of us. And so the point is that Paul is very confident that his ministry will be approved when Jesus judges it. And therefore he says in verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again. But what about the Corinthians he's writing to? Well, the problem is that these Corinthians were too influenced by a culture that takes pride in what is sin. You see that in verse 12. See, they, Paul wants them to be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance. The Corinthians in this church, they were too influenced by the culture around them that says, just look at it outward. And you see, the problem is that won't cut uh, the mustard with Jesus. That won't cut it with Jesus. Because Jesus, well, he looks at what's in the heart. Verse 12. And so Paul is writing, particularly this bit of this letter, to say, I want to give you, Corinthians, in the church in Corinth, a chance, an opportunity again to take pride in me and in my gospel before it's too late. And so he writes what we're about to look at. And so Paul's going to actually set out three motives, three motives or three reasons that drive his commitment to this gospel message. And let's look at that together. So the first motive Paul gives is this. So Christ's love compels us to die to ourselves. Christ's love compels us to die to ourselves. Let me read from verse 14 of chapter 5 again. Look down with me at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Essentially what Paul is saying is this, that the love of Christ, the love of Jesus in dying for him, means that his life now belongs to Jesus. The love of Jesus in dying for him means that his life now belongs to Jesus. So who here has seen the film called Schindler's List? Anyone here seen it? Okay, so it's, 
It's a great film. It's about a true story about a guy who was a German businessman during the Second World War. And, basically, and this guy, Oskar Schindler, he decided that he was going to use his influence, because he was very influential in German society, because of his big business, he had a factory that made goods. He was going to use his influence to save as many Jews as possible, because he saw what the Nazi party were doing to Jews, killing them in concentration camps, and he knew that was evil. But he was also very influential in the, in the Nazi party, because they needed his factories to make their weapons. And so he decided to employ lots of Jews. He decided to use his influence to hide them, to change their identity. He took all sorts of risks with his life to save as many Jews as possible from being killed. And so Schindler's act of love meant that many Jews today can trace back the reason that they're around to Schindler's risk in his life. And what does that mean for those people? Well, if you'd seen the film on DVD like I did, it ended with a sort of special feature. And you saw some of these families who are around today because of Schindler doing things like talks about him, uh, visiting his grave once a year. Basically, they've dedicated their lives to spreading the memory of who Oskar Schindler was because of his act of love. And it makes sense, doesn't it? See, it doesn't matter what agenda they had for their lives before, Schindler changed everything by his act of love. And so now their lives belong to him. They give their lives gladly to make his memory known uh, wherever they go. And the question is this, how much greater is Jesus' love for us? You see, Jesus was not merely a businessman, but the Son of God. He didn't merely risk his life, but he actually died for us on the cross. How much more do our lives belong to him? You see, when we understand that, then we gladly give up our ambitions to live and speak for Jesus, don't we? We gladly give that up. See, whether they're ambitions of respect or ambitions of popularity, we gladly say yes to speaking and living for Jesus, even when it costs us. And so that's why Paul says, actually, we should no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. It's been really encouraging to me to hear all about your door knocking. Mike keeps telling us about it, and it's really encouraging to hear that, because actually, when you go out in the afternoon, I don't know if you ever think there's a million better ways you could be spending your time <laughs> than trying to speak to strangers who don't really want to speak to you. And uh, most of them, you know, rejecting you, shutting their doors. There's a million better ways you could spend an afternoon than doing that. See, but it's only the love of Christ that gives you a motivation to do such a self-denying task, isn't it? It's only his love that can drive you to do that sort of thing. It's that love that reminds us that Christ denied his own life for us. So we gladly deny ours for him. Paul says, Christ's love compels us to die to ourselves. But what else kept Paul committed to the gospel message? Well, let's look. Paul says this also. He says, being a new creation changes how we see people. Being a new creation changes how we see people. Let me read from verse 16 again. Look down at verse 16, chapter 5. Paul says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I'll explain that in a second, but in 2013, Google launched a product called the Google Glass. Anyone heard of that? It's sort of like a tech product, yeah. 
basically this, the, the main feature about this Google Glass product, which is a piece of eyewear, was something called augmented reality. Now, that's not something that kind of we talk about every day. But the main, what I meant is this, that if you put on a pair of Google Glasses and you looked at the world, it would enhance what you saw about the world with extra information that wouldn't normally be there. Okay, so you might be looking at a statue like this guy, and it, it overlays, gives you more information than you would see. It helps you to see that this statue is however many feet tall. It was built by this guy this year. So you could look at anything in the world, and this, these glasses enhance how you view the world with more information than you would normally see. See, and Paul says, becoming a Christian, well, it's a bit like putting on a spiritual pair of Google glasses. See, look at verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What that means is that when we trust in Jesus, we get a new power, gets to work in us, and we begin to think and live like Jesus. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. It makes us a new creation. And when that happens, you see, it changes everything. It changes how you see everything. And Paul says it begins like this. It begins with changing how you see Jesus. Look at verse 16. Paul says, We once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Basically, Paul says, When I looked at Jesus, I just thought about him in worldly ways. All I saw was a weak failure. But now that I trust in Jesus, I see a loving Savior. You see, being a new creation changes how we see Jesus. But it doesn't end there. It changes how we see everyone. Verse 16, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Being a new creation changes how we see everyone. And you see, Paul is saying this because this was the Corinthian problem. See, their problem was that they were too influenced by the world's way of evaluating people. You see, and for them, Paul, well, Paul in his gospel, he had a use-by date. If someone came along in town with a less self-denying form of Christianity, they didn't require sacrifice, well, then they would just go with that guy. But Paul is saying to them, if you're truly a new creation, if you're in Christ, then we must see people differently. And the most important thing we'll see about people is this. It's very simple. This is the most important thing we'll see about people. Are they living for themselves? Or are they living for Jesus? Are they living for themselves? Or are they living for Jesus? And so as we look at this, it's worth asking ourselves, is this how we see people? You see, maybe you have a friend called Jane, and her life looks completely sorted. You know, her new boyfriend looks like Cristiano Ronaldo. He picks, up, picks her up in his BMW. He buys her Louis Vuitton. And you're thinking, Jane's life is sorted. What does she need? Whoa, whoa, hang on. Is Jane living for herself? Or is Jane living for Jesus? See, that's all that's going to matter. Look at verse 10. Go back over. This wasn't part of our reading. There's coming a day when we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. See, all that will matter on that day is this. Did we live for Jesus or did we live for ourselves? And the question is, as you see this, I don't know about you, is what are we to, what are we to do about this? Maybe we look at ourselves and we know that we're not living for Jesus. Or maybe we, we look at the people around us that we know maybe our, our friends, our family, and we think they're not living for Jesus. What's the solution? What are we going to do about this? And this is the most important thing that Paul has to share with us, that God's offer of reconciliation is our urgent message. 
God's offer of reconciliation is our urgent message. Let me read from verse 19. Uh, Have a look down at verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Trespasses just means sin. Okay, so in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is not a word we use every day, is it? But it simply means this. It means restoring enemies to friendly relationship. That's what reconciliation means. Restoring enemies to friendly relationships. So let's take another example. So South Africa, we've all heard of South Africa, country in, in South of Africa. And you know that they went through a period called apartheid. Um, and this was a time in South Africa's history when the law said that whites needed to be separated from blacks. White people and black people needed to be separate. And that was the law of the country. It was illegal. It was what the country said should happen. Uh, and some of you might have heard of that. That was sort of before the 80s and, and stuff. And, and, so, and then you had people pushing back against that. Obviously, you've all, maybe you've heard of Nelson, uh, Nelson Mandela. So he was very big in that. He was thrown in jail. But eventually, the battle was won. And, and they decided to outlaw apartheid. And Nelson Mandela was released. And what happened is when they decided to get rid of apartheid, they had to restore people to friendship. Mm. There was this situation, communities had been ripped apart. And so what they did is they set up something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And the job of this commission, it was sort of like a committee came to them, was this, that people who had committed acts against humanity, crimes against humanity under apartheid, which they thought were right, because the law said it was right, people who had committed crimes against humanity could come to this commission and publicly acknowledge that they had done wrong, publicly say what they did and say that they had done wrong. And if they did that, then they would no longer be treated as enemies of the states, but as friends of the states. They would be pardoned. And Paul says that the world needs reconciling to God. It's the same with us. The world needs reconciling to God. See, just as with South Africa, if we're going to be reconciled to God, some uncomfortable truths need to be spoken first, don't they? See, it's never popular telling people that they're God's enemies. That's not a popular thing to say. But that is what we are because of our sin. Our decision to live in God's world without regard for the God who made us. See, and the gulf that separates us from God, well, that's far, big, far bigger, huge, much bigger than the gulf that separated whites and blacks. And these are hard things to hear about ourselves. See, but we only say these hard things, says Paul, because there's good news. And what's the good news is this, reconciliation. See, God is inviting his enemies to become his friends. God is inviting his enemies to become his friends. And what does verse 19 say? He wouldn't count our sins against us anymore. Isn't that amazing that God would not count people's sins against them? And God has sent his ambassadors. That's why Paul says in verse 20, we are Christ's ambassadors. God has sent his ambassadors to tell us this good news. See, Paul and all the other apostles, they were handpicked 
by Jesus to represent him. They are ambassadors. So just like a British ambassador, whenever they are abroad, what they say carries the full backing of the United Kingdom, doesn't it? And Paul and the apostles, well, they're, they're Jesus' ambassadors. And what they say, it carries the full backing of the kingdom of God. And what have they come to say? They've come to say this, verse 20. Be reconciled to God. God is holding out his hand to us and saying to the world, be reconciled. It's amazing news. But I don't know about you, maybe you're thinking, how is that possible? Or maybe you think, how, how, how can that be possible? And this is what verse 21 says. This is how it's possible. For our sake, he, that's God, for our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what this is, is the great exchange of the cross. Okay, so on the one hand you have Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, and he's come into this world, and he's come to die a sinner's death. You see, as Jesus was nailed to the cross, and the nails were driven through his hands, that nail was meant for me, and it was meant for you. God made Jesus die a sinner's death, even though he wasn't a sinner. And because we were the sinners, he's taking that punishment. The nails that were meant for me and for you have gone through Jesus' hand. The death, the pain, the shame that was meant to be ours has been put on Jesus. And you see, over here, well, what do we receive? We receive Jesus' perfect, sinless life when we trust in him. We receive the righteousness of God. And we can come to God as his friends. That's the message of reconciliation. So Paul's ministry is just this. It's, it's very simple. It's about urging sinners to be reconciled to God. Urging sinners to be reconciled to God. And the question then is, well, what would it look like? What would it look like for us to say yes to this? What would it look like for us to say yes to this message? I imagine that there's maybe one or two here who need to receive this message about reconciliation. There might be one or two who need to receive reconciliation with God. You see, we're here in church, but church attendance doesn't reconcile sinners to God. Paul wrote this letter to a church in Corinth. See, they're, they were all churchgoers, weren't they? But Paul knew that there were many in that church who had little appetite for, the, for his teaching. They didn't want to hear what God's ambassador had to say. They just wanted to go to church. And so Paul says, be reconciled. Later on in his letter, Paul says this about those people who are committed to living for themselves and were in church. He says this in chapter 12. You don't need to turn there. Paul says, I fear that when I come again, I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. You see, Paul isn't saying people that need to be perfect, but what he's saying is these people haven't repented. They haven't turned away from living for themselves to living for Jesus. They are committed to living for themselves. And so it might be helpful for you to ask yourself this question uh, here today as you're in church. Is Jesus having any practical influence, any practical impact on how I live. So I'll repeat that. Is Jesus having any practical impact on how I live? And if the honest answer is no, 
then you do need to accept this offer of reconciliation. See, Paul says, chapter 6, verse 1, we urge you. See, Paul was here, he would say, stop everything now. Listen up. We urge you. Be reconciled. If Jesus has no influence, no impact on how you live, you need to receive this good news, because it is good news. Mm-hmm. See, verse 2 of chapter 6 says this, that all of, here, all of us here today, we find ourselves living in the day of salvation that the prophet Isaiah talked about. That's, we're, we're in that day. It's happening now. We're living in the day of salvation. And Paul says, seize the day. You see, God is holding out his hand and saying, be reconciled. Paul says, don't make a mockery of God's kind offer. Seize the day. Be reconciled to God. Call out to Christ. There is no other salvation apart from this. I thank God that many of us here would have received this offer of reconciliation. Many of us here would know the joy of walking with with God as our Father, of knowing that he doesn't count our sins against us because we've been reconciled with him. We've put our trust in Christ and we're living for him, not for ourselves. And we know how wonderful that is to, to walk out of your door each day knowing that no matter what the day throws at you, you're friends with God. You're reconciled to God. That's a brilliant thing. It's amazing. We should thank God for that, shouldn't we, every day? I also want to challenge us today. If that is us, if we believe this, then surely we want the same for our friends and our family who we know aren't living for Jesus. So what I'm going to do is actually I'm going to give us 30 seconds down where we're sat to just think and maybe write down if it's helpful about a friend or family member that you know isn't living for Jesus. But maybe you're tempted to think they're basically okay. Sometimes I do that. I, I invent like categories of people that aren't living for Jesus, but they're basically okay. And that category doesn't exist in the Bible. Um, so maybe take 30 seconds, think of someone, a friend or family, family member who isn't living for Jesus. And maybe write them down. Um, just take 30 seconds to do that. So that person you've written down or thought about in your head, we, we want to be praying for them. Praying that we would get an opportunity to share with them this message of reconciliation. And wouldn't it be a good thing if after the service, what you're doing as you chat about Monday morning, but also maybe chat about who did you, who did you write down? What was their name? How can I be praying for them for you uh, this week, this month, that they might get a chance to hear this message? It is God's kind of reconciliation. So why don't we talk about those, those people at the end of the service and be praying for one another in this. We're nearly done. I just want to end by helping us to just see what, what this means as we, as we go away from here. I want us to imagine the difference if we all shared with Paul these motives, if we shared with Paul this commitment to the ministry of reconciliation. So I want you to imagine the next time you go out door knocking, you go to that door and you knock on it and, and you know you, you just get pure insult just going back at you. Or maybe you knock on the door and it opens and it slams before you see the person's face. 
I want you to imagine that you don't go away overwhelmed with shame, but overwhelmed with joy. You see, joy that actually I could die in some small way for Christ to love me and die for me, actually die for me. I want you to imagine the Bacon Tree Church gets a reputation in the estate of being a radically loving church. And when people come in, it's not because you guys have put the Bibles away. You're a radically loving church because you see past people's appearances. You see that it's what's in the heart that matters. And therefore you use your energy, your lives, your homes to ensure that everyone, everyone has an opportunity to hear this message about reconciliation and to respond to it. And so you use your entire lives to do that. And so you radically love people. I want you to imagine that maybe because you've, you've received this offer of reconciliation, maybe even today for the first time, because if you receive this offer of reconciliation, when death comes, when you shut your eyes for the last time, you're able to say these words which Paul said as he was shutting his eyes for the last time. Paul says this in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. Wouldn't that be a brilliant way to finish your time here on this earth? Let me pray for us as we finish our time together in God's word. So, Father, we praise you for Christ, who so loved us that he died for us. And he died that we might no longer live for ourselves, but live for him. So we pray that, Lord, you would continue to help us to remember that love, that as we go out from here this week, that we would know that our lives now belong to Jesus. And that you would help us as we trust in him to live for him to be gladly uh, willing to give up uh, ambitions for the sake of Christ. We thank you that you've made uh, those of us who trust in him a new creation, that you've begun to work in our lives by the Holy Spirit so that we begin to see people differently. Father, have mercy on us and help us to see those around us differently, to not be put off by people's self-confidence, to not be put off by people's uh, poverty and, lack, uh, and the many practical things they need, uh, to not be put off uh, by people's resistance to the gospel, but to know that what people need is to live for Jesus and to not live for themselves. And we pray, Lord, for any here today who haven't received this offer of reconciliation, your kind offer to make enemies uh, into your friends. Lord, pray for them that they might call out to you today, even now, to say to Jesus, I acknowledge that I have lived for myself. Please forgive me through your death on the cross. Please make me a new creation. Thank you that you make me a friend. Uh, Pray that people who haven't received that reconciliation would pray this prayer if there's anyone here today. And Lord, we pray that as we go out into our weeks, help us uh, to be people who love 
uh, our community because we first and foremost love the God who reconciled us to himself. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.